Welcome to Workproof Your Brain and Body, a podcast about tools, strategies, and ideas you can use as a busy professional to upgrade your health and fitness. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Workproof Your Brain and Body. And in today's episode, I'm going to talk about one of those hidden forces that have some influence on the outcome of any health and fitness goal you may have. And this is about locus of control. And essentially, that's what is called in psychology, where they essentially are looking at who controls your outcome? Who is, who is in control of your health? Is it you or is it external factors? In other areas, this is sometimes called at cause or at effect. And to start this episode, I want to talk about a story that I heard. I was driving back from uh, a venue one day, uh, and this was on the radio, on Radio 4. And it's one of those stories where it just strikes you as as just a fascinating story that really emphasizes the point that I'm getting at here. And the story is about a guy called Hashi Mohammed. And Hashi came to the UK in uh, 1993 as an eight-year-old he's from he's a Somalian and he was born in Kenya now when the civil war broke out in Somalia it meant that he couldn't return so he came to the UK as an unaccompanied child refugee and he lived in an area of northwest London Uh, first of all look at being looked after by his eldest um, sibling and then by his aunt he lived in a house, in a three-bedroom house in northwest London that was shared by 18 people. And there is a Somali saying that those that want to be together should be able to share one big mat together, no matter how many there are. And this was very much the case in this house because there was 18 people living in this house. So he came to the UK and he grew up in, in this house. And none of the adults spoke any English. And, it, and he only had a few terms uh, from movies that he had watched. And when he was 19, uh, he went to Kenya. And he saw some of the slums where he, where he had uh, grew up early, before he moved to the UK. He had been living. And he said that he could remember the smell. When it rained, it brought him back that smell. Uh, But he made a firm decision there and there that he didn't want to spend the rest of his life in Kenya in that type of poverty. So he decided that his life was in the UK. Now, something interesting, that even even though his grandmother didn't speak much English, she told told him and the siblings that if you can't um, speak properly, then no one is going to take much notice of you. And she would have them practice, and it and she would she would watch and see uh, when they're talking how the other person is responding. And if they're not responding correctly, they um, she would say, "Why aren't you speaking properly?" So from a very early age, this aspect of social confidence was very important. And he ended up becoming 
a barrister. A Somalian refugee who came to here came to the UK with no English ended up becoming a barrister in an industry where only six percent come from working class backgrounds. Now, how did he get to that stage? How did he become a barrister? Well, first of all, he had two mentors, two mentors within the industry. But the interesting thing was that these mentors both said during this during this program that if it wasn't for how he presented himself, if it wasn't for how he came across with his grades, with his early grades, he wouldn't have got where he was. And because of the, in, within the barrister realms, it's very much about, do I want to spend my time with this person, with this other person in chambers? And that comes about of, do they share the same culture as me? So this is why a lot of people from who are barristers come from public school. It's from the same backgrounds. So he knew from a very early age, when, he, when one of his mentors took him to opera, he said to himself, I need to know more about this culture. I need to know more about opera and how it filters throughout culture. I need to know about, more about sport. And so when he... When he, when he um, gives talks now to people from um, uh, unprivileged backgrounds, he says you need to be adaptable. You need to use your background as a strength, as a way of showing your self-confidence. And he, he relayed a, something that he was told when he did what's known as pupillage, which is essentially when you spend time in a chambers uh, and you're a, you're a pupil, essentially. And his mentor said... Be like, be like wallpaper. And what he meant by that is don't try and change the game. Just get your head down and fit in. Now, the interesting thing was that when he interviewed someone that came to one of his talks, they said, it's all very well um, adapting. It's all very well, and it might get you further and it might get you through a career, but it won't change the fundamental issues that are still in place. And when I heard that, it rang true because she didn't, the person who said that still didn't get it. He, has she got it? Even though he was, he, the, the aspect of the talk was, um, you know, it, there, is a, there is a social divide in, in places like this. There is a social mobility issue in places like this. He recognized that. However, he got where he was because he was, at cause. He was responsible. He took responsibility for where he was going to get. Now, he may not have got there, but the things that he did, what do I need to do in order to get there, was what got him there. It wasn't about what this other person was saying. It's like, I have that awareness that I need to change the fundamental issues. Has she recognized from the very early start, he couldn't change it from the outside, essentially. If he was going to do anything, it had to be on the inside. And as a result, to get far, he recognized he needed to be at cause. He needed to be responsible for his outcome. And that is, that is what I mean by here, who controls your health? Because if I ask you who controls your health, from a logical perspective, you could say, well, I do. But does the evidence suggest that? Does the nurturing of it 
feature in how you conduct your daily life? Does your decisions and behaviours on a regular basis bring you closer or further away from being fitter and healthier? Do you say, oh, if only I was less busy, if only I was, um, I had a better work-life balance? These are aspects that, that highlight where who you are thinking takes control of your health. And it was Aristotle, the, the Greek philosopher, who was the first to suggest that the whole is more than the sum of its parts. And one of his reasonings was that the parts only obtain their meaning in terms of the purpose as a whole. And what I think he means by this is what you do, which would be the parts, has value from looking at it from a perspective of the whole, which is your health. So health has nothing, I mean, health means nothing if there are no parts that make up the health. So, so many people say, if I wasn't so busy, if I only had more money, if I only had more motivation. And implicit within all of these is a notion that there is some other entity that is in control of your health. And I had a, I had a client once and she came to me and she, she didn't end up being my client. We have, we have this initial session and she, as she described all her, uh, you know, her life and her experiences and things like that, she said, basically, I want to, cha- I want, I want this, I want the outcome without changing anything. Now, what was it that Einstein said? That insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome. She was she wanted to do exactly the same. Of course she did. She, she, she was enjoying her life. She was enjoying, enjoying the pleasures of, of um, her, her social eating. She was a social character. Um, and, you know, why would she want to change that? However, she wanted a different outcome. Uh, she wanted to stay the same and get a different outcome. And where was she expecting the control to come from from there? She was expecting an outside entity to change it. It was almost like saying, I want to change uh, and I want the McDonald's to stop branding their, their stuff on the billboard. Yeah, I will change when that happens. Well, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. McDonald's spend billions, billions on advertising over, over years. Now, example from the world of food is something called evolutionary mismatch evolutionary mismatch and it represents the idea that traits that evolved in an organism in one environment can be disadvantageous in different environments so when we were hunter-gatherers we sought fat salt and sugar if we were lucky to find a beehive we would eat that honey like there was no tomorrow we, we would go to town on it. Why? Because we didn't know when our next meal was coming from. So if we killed an animal, we, we ate it all. We didn't just have the breast of the animal or anything like that. We ate it all, the organs, everything, the marrow, everything. We ate it all because we didn't know when our next meal was coming. Now we live in abundance Today, more people are obese in the world than malnourished. The 
the only obese animals are domesticated animals. And like I said, McDonald's spends close to $500 million annual on advertising. Do you think they are going to change their ways first? Because you find it hard to have a quarter, resist a quarter pounder three times a week. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So, so this idea of evolutionary mismatch is, is the idea that, you know, that within us, there are certain triggers around food that came from the very beginning. Okay. And they are there. And that's why we have to put mechanisms in place because of the world that we're living in now, food is, food is abundant. Food is abundant. You go to the supermarket and even when we've had this recent pandemic, food was still in the, uh, in the aisles because we have these, these supply chains that allow us to have food uh, whenever, 24 hours a day. We didn't have that back then. So we have to have systems in place that allow us to be in more control of our outcomes. So how do we, how do we control it? How do we take control of our health, of our health? How do we be at cause rather than effect? Well, what I'm going to do is give you three um, factors, three pieces of action points that you can take away and you can start to implement in what you do. And the first one is turn ambiguity into action. So health is ambiguous in a way. You can't see health. You can't look at, um, you can't put health in a wheelbarrow, for example. You have to ask, how do I do healthy? And what you get is health-seeking behaviors, okay? So what is health is you could say that is a healthy person. And what you see if you looked at their lives in a reality TV show is actions that they do that that, um, have a bias towards health. So you may see what they're eating each day. You might see what they, how they're moving each day. But also you see other things, priorities, hierarchies of, hierarchies of importance in regards to what do they place more value on? Do they get home? And whereas someone would sit in front of the TV all evening, do they ensure that they ha- have a workout? Also, their thinking. What is their thinking around health? How do they again, place priorities on things over others. This is about turning ambiguity into action. And when you look at those actions that you can do, and you can ask yourself, what can I do this week that can um, bring me closer towards a healthier lifestyle? That starts to put you in control because you are deciding what to do. The second one is proximity without prohibition. Now, our body is adaptable. You don't need to be the health version of a monk. Now, it sounds boring, but the 80-20, okay? The 80-20 has been around for years. But maximize that 80-80 
through around five key areas, movement, mindset, nutrition, sleep quality, and stress control. When you have that 80%, the 20% is negligible. But the thing is, what can happen, especially if we take the weight loss area, is that someone will look to lose weight and they'll suddenly have this all or nothing mentality. Is that I am going to be perfect in what I do. But as we said before, we are in an environment where triggers are everywhere. We have we place more value now on the pleasure of food rather than the act of eating. Why? Because food is abundant. Back when we were hunter-gatherers, we took anything that came. Now we have choice, and that choice is great. But the the desire to over the the temptation to overeat is always going to be there. The temptation to uh, be comfortable rather than uh, do some form of um, challenging exercise is always there. But it doesn't have to be a constant 24-7 act of being healthy. You can have that pleasure still. You can have those enjoyable things still. But the systems have to be in place in order for there to be more health-seeking behaviors than uh, behaviors that take you away from health. And that is what I mean by proximity without prohibition. Have measures in place that allow you to be healthy, but don't allow yourself to turn off that pleasure seeking things uh, completely because what will happen is that it will create a taboo. You'll want it more by pushing it away further. And the third thing is turn that frown upside down. Make it an enjoyable act. Make health-seeking behaviors a thing that you enjoy doing. When you enjoy doing it more, you're more likely to do it. Now, that doesn't mean straying far away from challenge. Challenge is good. Ch- having, sh- having small doses of struggle is good. But again, within your, within your control. As you make it more enjoyable, you'll find that you'll want to do them more. And the more health-seeking behaviors you do, the easier it becomes and the more you get the results that you, that you want. But all of these three things, the act of turning ambiguity into action, proximity without prohibition, and turning that frown upside down to make it more enjoyable, all of these things work for you to be in more control about your health. The worst thing happens around human nature is the feeling of powerlessness. The feeling that you are not in control, the feeling that you have no power over your outcome. And the ability to be in a situation where you are doing health-seeking behaviors, you you are asking, what can I do? Rather than saying, what needs to change outside of me, my external environment, By recognizing that, you already, you are becoming more in control. So that concludes this session this week. Who controls your health? Be in control of your health and work towards 
having more health-seeking behaviors in your life by turning ambiguity into action, having proximity without prohibition, and turning that frown upside down to make the acts more enjoyable. And I'll see you in the next episode of Workproof Your Brain and Body.